0: All right, today is the last uh, Sunday in our, Mark, or in our Mark study, so if you have a Bible, open to the Gospel of Mark. And if you have a Red Pew Bible, we're going to just read a, a smaller section today from uh, page 853. Our text is Mark fifteen forty-two all the way through to the end, 16, verse 20, but we're just going to read chapter 16, verses 1 through 8 now. I'll give you a minute to find that. All right, Mark 16, 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. Very early on, the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, "'Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb?' And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large.' And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The word of the Lord.
1: Happy Easter. Uh, uh, I was on sabbatical about a year and a half ago, and and during that time, uh, I just felt a really strong desire to preach through a gospel when we got when I got back, so that's that's what I planned to do, and that was a year and a half ago, and so we've been in this study for a year and a half, but since that time, our, our staff gets together every Tuesday morning to kind of discuss our series and what we 're going through, and uh, we were wanting to time time it so that we would focus on the death and the resurrection of Christ in January of two thousand and eighteen and February two thousand and eighteen so that we would start out. 2018 with that as our focus. And so here we are uh, closing out this book and here we are in February, several weeks past uh, January but my di- my desire was like the Apostle Paul to center us on Jesus Christ in him crucified and his resurrection. And this is what Paul wrote 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verses 1 and 2. And I when I came to you brothers did not Come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So, before anything else, I know we've been making a large to do about our annual meeting, uh, which it is a big deal. We have monthly leadership meetings, and as Pastor Steve mentioned, we've been having these vision gatherings and the, these vision kind of trainings with elders and staff for the past several months. But before any of those things, I, I do hope and pray that our church is, is centered on Jesus Christ and in him crucified. All the uh, professional workshops uh, that I've heard of and I've attended, they say to repeat things three times to people for them to remember it, and so now I've repeated myself four times. Um, so hopefully you, you got that. But, but death, is, uh, death is so final, which is partly why it's so painful. It, it shows the finality of life, and there's this undeniable reality that that person is gone. And so no more conversations, no more being in the physical presence or experiencing the physical touch of that person anymore. And what we have here at the end of chapter 15 is a repeated confirmation that Jesus is dead. And there's no doubt that he is indeed dead. Start here in verse 42. And when evening had come since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Jesus was taken down from the cross, wrapped in a linen shroud, placed in a tomb because he died. And like our repetition of Jesus Christ in, in him crucified, so five, six times now. Here we read Mark repeating within four verses about death. And so he uses words like died, dead, dead, corpse, tomb, tomb, And so Mark is making a really big deal that Jesus is dead. He's dead. And the words Mark used is evidence of this. And what he wrote in the story clearly points to the death of Jesus. And Joseph asked for the corpse of Jesus. Pilate is surprised at how quickly Jesus died. Centurion confirms Jesus' death. It was his job to do this. And so John wrote in his gospel all these things to make sure that we understand he's dead. John chapter 19, verses 32 through 34, reads this. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and... At once, there came out blood and water." After the centurion confirmed Jesus' death, uh, Jesus' corpse was granted to uh, Joseph of Arimathea by Pilate. Joseph purchased that linen shroud to begin the burial rituals, and Jesus was laid in a tomb. Death is something that all of us will face. It confronts our mortality. And it's so odd, because when we were younger, we felt that time couldn't go fast enough. You know, like, my my daughters, my oldest daughter's 11 now, and she just wants to be older, I, it's crazy to me. And, and my four-year-old, I'm trying to keep her, like, two, because, like, it's my last one, so, you know, I'm, like, trying to keep, but, you know, she's growing up, and she's using these really big words and things like that. But, and then, as we age, It seems that time goes too fast, that we want to slow it down. And it's like, where's the time going? Why is time just clicking by so quickly? I'm not getting to experience the things that I want to fully, whether that's like grandchildren or like different experiences that you just want to hold on to more dearly. Yet there is death, and it's waiting for every single one of us aren't you really glad you came here this morning? It's just been such an uplifting message thus far. But it's not our death I'm highlighting. I want to highlight Jesus' death and that it's Jesus' death that transforms people. And so you look at what happened to Joseph. Joseph was a respected member of the council. He was part of the Sanhedrin a disciple of Jesus though a secret follower of Jesus but it wasn't until the death of Jesus that he really made himself known as a follower of Jesus he kind of revealed himself and so then Joseph becomes this person of the hour in our story who who really stepped up and he made this really courageous request of Pilate and when figuring out, you know, what are we going to do with Jesus' body and, and, you know, where is he going to be buried? It's not like he had a place. And, and part of why I want to focus on the death of Jesus early on in 2018 is that perhaps there are Josephs in here. You're, you're in here, you're in this background, and you're present, but there's something more for you to do. While you're here, and I'm hoping that Jesus' death is so real for you, like it was for Joseph, that it inspires you, it motivates you to courageously step up, to take a bold step forward, to live that transformed life that Jesus has for you, to do something, to do something brave with your faith in Jesus that it wouldn't just be stuck in your head. And so maybe it's to share the gospel with that person you've been holding out on sharing with, whether that be a coworker, family member, friend. Maybe you're an introvert like myself and you're kind of reclusive and you're isolated from community. You like just kind of being alone off to the side, but maybe it's time to find community whether that's joining a home group or looking for a small group or getting involved in people's lives. Maybe you've been coming here for a while and uh, you've just been coming here. And maybe it's time to help, to do something around here, to help the community here. and maybe, maybe that's it. Maybe it's a confession of sin Maybe it's dealing with an addiction. Maybe it's forgiving someone. Maybe it's sharing your resources with someone that doesn't have all that much. And whatever that bold step is, to step out of those shadows and to step into a light that can transform your life. To stop being Joseph in the shadows, but being Joseph who says, I'll I'll take that body. And I'm going to pay for it. I'm going to give him my tomb. I'm, I'm going to do it. That's the great thing about Jesus in that he gives us this dignity to participate in the work of the kingdom. That we're not just spectators, but we're active participants in influencing the souls of people, the people's eternal souls. And maybe the hour is now for you to step up to influence eternity. A little bit of background about what happened to people after they were crucified. Usually, the person was really brutalized, beaten, and there wasn't a care for the person's body before crucifixion, so obviously there is not a care after their death. And so often the bodies were just left to rot on the crucifix. And if it was low enough, it would be wild animals that were on the ground. And if it was a higher crucifix where it couldn't be reached, then it would be birds that would just kind of start working on that body and insects and whatnot. And the body would begin to decompose. And then whenever they decided to take that decomposing body down from that crucifix, it would be thrown into a mass grave where there those bodies would be devoured by wild animals. And... Perhaps that's why it was called Golgotha, place of the skulls, because it was a mass grave and skulls. So that's kind of what happened there. That's what happened to the two robbers that were on either side of Jesus uh, as they were being crucified, is they were just thrown into this mass grave. But Joseph and the others made sure to care for Jesus' body. They, they did not want that to happen, which is... An unusual thing, because when people were sentenced to capital punishment, their bodies belonged to Rome. They, were, they weren't their families. Your family couldn't come claim it. They, you, you, you wouldn't have rights to that. So they'd throw it into this mass grave. So this is an unusual thing, but we do know that Joseph is a very wealthy person, a, a person of high influence. He's part of the Sanhedrin, and so he goes to Pilate and Pilate grants this. And Pilate handled this event a little bit differently by saying yes. And he grants the corpse to Joseph, and he thus fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah 53, verse nine. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had no done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Keep in mind this is centuries before Jesus even was born, that Isaiah had prophesied these things. And when they buried Jesus, they didn't believe Jesus was going to resurrect, even though he had mentioned this time and time again. But they don't really believe this, yet they want to honor Jesus, but they're, they're not really waiting for a resurrection. They just simply thought, you know, Jesus died, and that's it. That's, that's kind of the end, and we, we loved him, and we want to honor him. And so we, we, we just want to pay our respects. And so another secret follower comes out of the shadows. His name is Nicodemus. Uh, Nicodemus is, is also uh, part of the council. And, and he brings this mixture of myrrh and aloes and about 75 pounds worth of it, as John chapter 19, verse 39 tells us. And then in verse 40 it reads, So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. So everyone thought, you know, it's, it's over. Jesus is dead, and so we're, we're done. And then picking up our story here in Mark 15, verse 47, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. So they're paying their respects, but no one there's thinking resurrection. No one there's thinking, you know, he's gonna overcome the grave. And while guys like Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, they they did step up in Jesus' death and they did provide resources for the burial rituals. Where were they when he was alive? They're they're hiding. They're worried about reputation. They're fearful of, of the rest of the Sanhedrin. And yet these women that were present here, they were there with Jesus some all the way back in the days of Galilee, ministering with Jesus, to Jesus, and they're there throughout his life. They're there at his death. We're going to see that they're there at his resurrection. They are constantly there. And it was Jesus' death that it it changed something for Joseph. It changed something for Nicodemus. It, it, It caused them to come out of this secret life. See, Jesus transforms us if we have the courage to take that step of faith in our belief in him and doing actually what he says to do. Our our secret lives can destroy our discipleship to Jesus. Those things that you're hiding, those things that you don't want to lay out, those things in the shadows can destroy that. Those secrets you're hiding can destroy your discipleship to Jesus. But our true discipleship to Jesus can destroy our secret life. If you would be bold enough, if you would be vulnerable enough, in a safe community like ours, your life can be changed. Your discipleship to Jesus can free you from the bondage of the shadows, the bondage of your secrets. So, where are you this morning with Jesus? Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 8, Paul wrote, But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith that that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved." And so now we enter into a different part of the story. We enter into Jesus Christ's resurrection, a foundational piece of the Christian faith. And we start out our 2018 with Jesus Christ and him crucified, and we also center ourselves in Jesus Christ's resurrection. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verse 14, if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. You skip down to verse 17, and if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. So let's take a look at chapter 16. Verse 1, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. Again, Jesus is dead. And these women are going to the corpse of Jesus to anoint it. They're not expecting Jesus to resurrect. They're expecting Jesus' body to be in the tomb. They saw Jesus die. They saw him be pulled down from the cross. They saw where his body was placed. And they were there because they loved him. And they wanted to continue to show their love and to show their respect for him. Verse 2 And very early on the first day of the week when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. Keep in mind, we are dealing with eyewitness reports here. These are people that were there. And this is one of the most odd things about our gospel because I I brought this up last week. If this were presented in a court of law as it is written to have women as the witnesses and using their testimonies it wouldn't be accepted in court because they viewed women as not credible witnesses their testimonies were not admitted in court and yet this is how our gospel is presented like we we don't really care how you view those people we care that they are people, and that there is a dignity and a value that is placed on them by God. And so if this was not what really happened, why in the world would any of the gospel writers, all of them, report it this way? And report that it's a woman that saw this stuff first. And it's a woman that is at the tomb. See, if this was really an invention, a human invention... There's no way you would write it like this. Because it would not be a credible thing. No one would accept it. But again, this is God. And God rips away the obstacles that block our access to him. He tears those things down, especially... Those who have not been given dignity, who have not been given value, and he opens that wide open. Last week we talked about God, he ripping the veil from top to bottom, that 60 foot by 30 foot, four inches thick veil, and he rips that apart. It's what separated the holy of holies, what people believed God's presence to be in there from the rest of the world, and it was torn because it was no longer needed. That Jesus tore that separation apart from his presence to everybody else. And here we see God do it again. That this very large stone was an obstacle for some of the least in society. And it was rolled away. We're going to remove that. There is no obstacle between God and people anymore. And Christianity, I I, I grant you this if you're not a believer in Jesus, you're not following Jesus, it is a very challenging and difficult idea to accept. I, I, I grant it to you. And I think that folks aren't grasping the whole thing because a lot of times when you talk to people about Christianity, it's about a moral code. It's about how to live your life. It's about a code of ethics. It's a list of do's and don'ts and rights and wrongs. Parts of it, but if you think that that's it, you're missing it. You're missing it. It is a revolutionary jolt of spiritual reality. That's what Christianity is. It, It challenges our way of thinking, our way of living, in that it is so unnatural. It is abnormal to earthly and fleshly life, living. It is a rebellion against what is natural. This is what makes it so hard, difficult, challenging to accept. But here's the thing. Death is natural. Death is very natural. Death is a very normal thing. But Christianity is not. And if you only believe in natural things, if you only believe in fleshly, (coughs) earthly things, then where is the hope for anything other than death? Because that's a natural thing. Justice is not a natural thing. That's not a normal thing. Think about this. Fairness is not a natural thing. I I know this firsthand because I have four children. Like, and and when they come out and they this is one of the first things, that's not fair. And I have to like sit them down and it, it usually comes out at about two years old. Not, not, I'm, it's not, life's not fair or not. Like, that's not fair. That usually comes out about like two or so. As soon as they can start like formulating words, that's not fair, that's when it comes out. (laughs) And I have to sit them down and I say, honey, one of the first things in life that I have to teach you and I have to tell you, nothing is fair. Nothing. Nothing. Life's not fair. And you need to understand, and the faster you understand, the quicker you understand that, the better life will be for you. Because if you think life is fair all the time, it's going to be terrible. Life's going to be terrible. And that's why we still don't have it right. After all these years of human existence, we still don't have justice right. We still don't have fairness right. And you're telling me that we understand what it is, yet we don't get it right? After how many years we've been here? So where is the hope of equity and justice and fairness? Because in the history of humanity, we've never experienced this fully, ever. It just still remains an ideal. It still remains just an idea. But it's never been lived out in its fullness, ever. And so if you are to believe in such things, your only hope is in God, who is not natural. Because if you believe in the natural things, you already know your end. We've never gonna, we're never going to get there. Verse 5, And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, that he is going before you to, the, to Galilee. There you will see him just as he has told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. You know, I found that over the decades that this conversation surrounding the resurrection of Jesus Christ has actually changed a little bit. You know, before... Um, we talk about whether this is even true or not, and then they have all these books of apologetics to help you tell people how this is true and how this isn't, and then you can go through this whole kind of apologetic to give your reasons and the logic behind it. And so there would be this discussion about whether that is true or whether that is not true. And I found that the discussion is really different now That it's not about whether the resurrection is true or not. Because for the most part, at least around in the Bay Area, if you talk to people, people are fine with whatever you believe. If you want to believe that, then believe that. That's good for you. And then whatever I believe is good for me. So don't step on what I believe. I don't step on what you believe. And so we all sing kumbaya together if we want to. But if you don't want to, then that's fine. But if I want to, then that's fine. It's like, you know, Whatever. And so, if you don't believe me about this, then just go talk to people about the resurrection, and, and you'll find out that it's probably similar, that that's what people, like, oh, that's great, that's great that you believe that. There isn't really that debate back and forth of like, oh, no, that's not true, that can't be true, how silly, because the discussion doesn't seem to, to revolve around the historical fact anymore. That's not what it's about anymore. The, the, the discussion has evolved into whether it even matters. Yeah, oh okay, sure, I'll give that to you, but who cares? Like, how is that meaningful to me? How is that meaningful at all? Like, fine, you believe that, and I'll be believe what I believe. But how is that even relevant to me? And so it's treated more like just a point of history. Okay, fine, it happened, and I'll give that to you. So what? And so for us to figure that out, to think that through, why is it relevant? And again, it's relevant because if you follow nature, if you follow what's natural, we all experience death. So it pertains to all of us because death is relevant to all of us. And from what I know, maybe you know somebody different. Everyone who has faced death has lost And since everyone who faces death has lost, has there been anyone in all of human history who has beaten it? Because if not, yeah, who cares? It's meaningless. It's irrelevant. But here we have Jesus who conquered death and he's telling us I did it for you so that you don't have to experience eternity without me, without God. That you can have life abundant. That you can have eternal life. That's our story as Christians. The resurrection is very relevant because death exists because of sin. The wages of sin is death, and Jesus conquered that death by entering into our time and our space and taking our place of death with his sinlessness and he fixed it he fixed what was broken and he resurrected from the dead to deliver us from those wages of sin so if anyone ever wonders does it even all, any any of this matter yes so much so that god sent his only son to die in your place so that we can all experience an abundant life not just a good life now but an abundant life for everlasting so these bigger questions that if you just follow nature have a really hard time answering things like do we have purpose do we matter and if we do have purpose where does it come from And if it is just from us, from our own creation, if if we are the ones who are actually coming up with our own origin stories, then why are we still unable to fulfill the deepest longings of our heart? And if we could, how come we haven't figured it out by now? Because we've been here a really long time. Why can't we figure it out? You know, we have all these signs around us from God, for God. And signs like, signs like a, a, a beautiful sunset or a, a gorgeous sunrise. Um, I don't know who was awake to see the blood moon. Um, just was that last week? It's transcendent. Those things are transcendent. And it reminds us that there's more. Even in our relationships, you know, our relationships, they can be really, really wonderful, or they can be really terrible. But either way, we all know that it's more than what we've already experienced, that there's more. And so we get these glimpses, but we know that there are more, two things. So like, we get glimpses of justice, but we know there's more. We get glimpses of mercy and of grace and of peace but we know that there's more so so whether that's beauty transcendence relationships justice mercy love peace in order to get to that ultimate fulfillment of what it is that we're looking for we have to follow whoever whatever it is that has it that we can't follow who does not have it And so if we can't follow someone who doesn't have what we want, why do we follow people who don't have what we want? Yet we do it all the time. We listen to people, talk about justice, and then we follow them, and yet they don't exercise it themselves. There's something that comes out that they did something. And then we're surprised. Don't be surprised. They're a sinner. And we listen to people about relationships and how they value people and they give dignity to people when they can't practice what they preach. So whom are we following? Are they really worthy of our allegiance, of our loyalty, when they can't even deliver on their promises? And yet God delivers on his promises. We have a Bible full of them. Over 300 messianic promises, all fulfilled 100%. He has shown that he's worthy to be followed. Here's a claim made by Jesus. He made many, but here's just one of them. And who else can make this claim? John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. We all physically die. Jesus physically died too, but he resurrected. He gives us that eternal life. God invites us to have life and to have it abundantly. He didn't have his only son die on the cross so that you and I will live miserable lives. God's invitation is entrance into his kingdom. And in order to enter, we have to repent. We have to change. We have to believe faith. He warns us that if we don't repent and if we don't believe, our sins will kill us. We will die in our sins. So have we responded to this invitation? He's inviting us to this. Now, if Mark's gospel ended here, it would seem like one of those movies where you get this unresolved ending and you're wondering like what 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 happened like why are the credits rolling this is, please continue and they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid and then mark's gospel ends and you're wondering like mark come on man Now, we know that things did follow, and we can read this in the other Gospels, we can read this in the book of Acts, we can can follow along in the story, but as far as Mark's Gospel account, you'll notice that in our ESV Bibles, in in the ones in the pews, there's this little bracket and there's a note there that says that the, the oldest manuscripts don't have these verses 9 through 20, and it's true, the oldest manuscripts that we have do not have verses 9 through 20. And so it is believed for those who wrote the ESV here that that those were an appendix to mark 's gospel because uh, of how it has this unresolved ending in, in verse eight, and yet we, we know of other things too, so we can include these things so i 'm not going to break down verses nine through twenty. You can pick up a study Bible or several study Bibles and go through that. you can go f- through that stuff I do. And, and it's not because I'm, I'm afraid to talk about serpents or snakes or something. It's not a thing like that. I, I like reptiles. <laughs> it's, it's just that my focus is on Christ and Him crucified and resurrected. I, I don't want to end our one-and-a-half-year study on verses 9 through 20. It's just I'd rather have an unresolved ending. But keep in mind that verses 9 through 20, I just want to talk briefly about it because I I don't want you guys to to leave with like, well, what's what's that there? I just want to give you some stuff so that it's there and you can think about it. Verses 9 through 20 don't contradict any other part of the Bible. And this isn't the only place that we find an edit like this, actually. If you look at John's gospel, it happens there as well. In John chapter 7, starting in verse 53, goes all the way to John chapter 8, verse 11, the same thing happened. And it doesn't change the authority. It doesn't change the inerrancy of Scripture. The Christian orthodoxy hasn't changed because of these verses. It's not something to be unsettled about. We simply don't have the earliest manuscripts of the Gospels, and the earliest ones that we do have don't have this. And so we do have many copies, and we can be very confident of the copies that we have because of, I'll share a theological seminary word with you, textual criticism. Textual criticism is a scholarly discipline of examining all the manuscripts that we do have, and then you start working back from all these manuscripts to see the, uh, the best approximation of the original wording of the original manuscripts. We have a ton of this. And so we have outstanding manuscript evidence, and and we can be really confident about the large majority of the Bible's words. Now, this textual criticism is really, really important when it comes to Mark 16, verses 9 through 20, because we need to realize that there isn't a Christian doctrine that depends on these verses. Nothing about Christian faith changes based on this section of Scripture being authentic or inauthentic. It doesn't introduce any new doctrine and if you're interested again in learning more about this you can there's a lot of stuff on there and study away and if you still have questions about it Pastor Steve he walked out because I told him I was going to point to him like talk to Pastor Steve Um, but he's out there um, about this stuff because um, I, I don't want to so so talk to him but maybe mark's intention was to end the gospel like this and it would be really fitting that he would end it like this because it's kind of based off of his style of writing he's really to the point in, in his writing unlike matthew mark uh, matthew luke and john his his pace is quicker than those other writers which is why he why we finish this study in one and a half years and it took us two and a half, three years to finish Luke. You know, that's, aren't you happy you weren't here for that? So, so verse 8, they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. And then it ends. Now this is, this is really fascinating, at least to me it is. Look, look, look at the pattern here because this is what Mark does often. It fits this pattern that Mark does. In Mark 4, Jesus calms the storm. Verse 41, And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Mark 5, let's go through this quick. This is after the demons were cast into the pigs in, in the Genneserines and then they jumped in. And so this is this verse, verse 15. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Continue on in chapter 5. This is the story of the hemorrhaging woman in Capernaum. Verse 36, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. One more. Chapter 6, Jesus walking on water. And the disciples see this, picking it up in verse 49. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. There are actually... Many more stories with this pattern, but you, you get it, right, after I've shared it four times again. They say share it three, I shared it four. So you get it. So chapter 16, verse 8 fits this pattern, and it matches with Mark's pace, all of Mark pointing back to chapter 1, verse 15, which I've pointed to time and time again. It reads, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel, which we have pointed back to several times. People are always looking for something. Justice, peace, joy, meaning, freedom. Always looking for something that can never be fully fulfilled. Things that can all be found in Jesus and in his kingdom. And so interestingly, to say we found it in Jesus is not universally accepted. But if you said, we're on this journey of discovery to finding these things and we're looking at it in Jesus, then that's a little bit more accepted. But yet Jesus does offer all of those things for us, and we can talk about the process and the journey, but why is it that it's not accepted to say we found it in Jesus? If he died, resurrected, if those unnatural things happen, why is it so crazy? Because we believe in unnatural things, we believe in divine things, we believe in supernatural. The, the resurrection caused fear because people didn't expect it. It is unusual. And all those other things that caused fear, walking on water, casting out demons, they're unnatural. And that's what we're really to focus on is the death and the resurrection of Jesus that's unnatural. And so it's hard. It's challenging to accept that. And the way Mark ended the gospel with this type of response from Jesus' followers is to also pull a response from us. What is our response? What are you going to do with this news? Do we have a fear? Because this is not natural. This is supernatural. And fear is not always bad. Look at uh, Psalm 111, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All, who, all those who practice it have a good understanding. Proverbs 1, 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. We are fearful. We're not terrorized. He resurrected from the dead to save us from our sins through his death. Then those are fearful ideas. Raised from the dead if you saw someone raised from the dead, you'd be fearful. I'm doing a memorial service on um, the 19th, and it's um, someone who passed away, and, and she has since been cremated, but if she resurrected, dude, I, I'd be out the door. I got, uh, Fearful. Mark's ending is abrupt. It's unusual. It's purposeful, and it ends with the question for us to come out of Secrecy to, to follow God, to step in courage in, in our faith. And so have we repented? Have we changed? Have we entered that life of faith in Jesus? Let's pray. God, we are thankful for your divine plan and for what you've done for us. I pray, God, that... Um, for anyone who doesn't know you as their savior, as their redeemer, as the one who rescues them from their sin, of the one who rescues them from a natural life, which is death. I pray God that you would open their mind, that you would soften their heart, that they would step out in faith and take a brave step out of the shadows and into the light to even just give you a chance to experience how good you are. In Jesus' name, amen. wanted to end this series uh, with us reading the Apostles' Creed together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth,